0: The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and a podcast on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from The Rob Russo Show, where me, Duncan Kinney, talked to Rob about my very serious dark horse Senate campaign that has captured the province's political imagination. Harbinger is a fantastic project. You can become a supporter of Harbinger and get exclusive supporter only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Also, the progress report only exists because of the support of people like you. If you can, please consider joining the 500 or so other folks who donate monthly to keep this independent media project going. Jim and I would be incredibly grateful. The link to donate is in the show notes. And, And that's it. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, and we're recording today here in amiskwichiwa otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasa-Wanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today to discuss how things are just great and uh, nothing terrible is happening at all to our province's healthcare system is Sandra Azakar, the executive director of the Friends of Medicare. Sandra. Welcome back to the pod.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So, Sandra, how uh, are you doing right now? Are you sleeping? How's your mental health? Uh, I mean, I feel like shit. I was I was actually drinking last night, but that's that's <laughs> just just my circumstances. What about what about you? I
1: uh, you know that's a that's a really good question, and I as an advocate, you don't often get asked that. I think uh, because people I don't know expect you to be on twenty four seven. And uh, but this past eighteen months have been crap, and I and I think um, it's the same thing for everybody. I mean, early in the pandemic, very close family members had COVID, and we had, you know, prior to the vaccines in place. So um, yeah, it was a uh, um, tough times at the beginning, and then. Watching people, you know, close friends die from COVID hasn't been a fun thing. And then add the crap that this government continues to do to our public health care system hasn't made it a a really happy time. So in terms of sleeping, it's usually very troubled sleeping. But you know what? It's nothing to what our health care workers are going through. So I think I take take, uh, at least some... um, some soul is in the fact that uh, it could always be worse. You could always be a healthcare worker.
0: It could always be worse. You could be a healthcare worker. Uh, yes, very true words. I mean, the stories that are coming out from healthcare workers right now, right? Like the, uh, you know, you have doctors talking about. Uh, You know, they're writing obituaries for their patients on Twitter. You know, you have this, this strategy of this, of this nurse, this ICU nurse, Susan Foremsky, who was like front and center of the, of the vaccination campaign when it first started, like she was doing media and stuff, you know, the like dying of an apparent overdose, like, uh, you know, she was dealing with shitheads telling her that COVID was fake and protesting outside her hospital, right? Like in the midst of, you know, dealing with a generational healthcare crisis, (laughs)
1: It's uh, it's tragic what what uh, what it, what we're seeing being played out in front of us and I, I uh, sometimes you kind of shake your head and think it's almost like being in a in a in a movie of some a gross movie of some kind because it just doesn't seem real that um, that people are behaving in the way that they're behaving and you know that our government is behaving in the way that they're behaving I mean we we hear of death every day and and Yesterday's uh, press conference was a perfect example of how there was not even a recognition by Kenny um, or or our newly minted ma- uh, minister of health, uh, you know, paying respect to those that died yesterday or the day before. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Dina Hinshaw always has her kind of like pro forma. We're very sad that all of these people have died, and yeah. you know, these every person was a person, and they had a family, and it's very sad. But like Kenny yeah. doesn't even say that shit, and he, and he like never really has. Um, no, it's just never seemed to phase him at all. He's never kind of like taken a moment to being like, "Damn, like twenty people died yesterday. That's it's fucking awful." Uh, but yeah, let us, uh, yeah, let, let us let us take a moment uh, to just take stock of the totality of just how fucked uh, the healthcare system is in Alberta. Um, I've got a quote here from uh, Doctor Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association, the national group that represents doctors. "Quote: What we're seeing now is essentially no ability to provide any other acute care medicine beyond care to people with COVID. So, in essence, the healthcare system has already collapsed."
1: Yeah, and I would uh, agree a hundred percent with that quote. Um, you know, we've been we've been saying that that our healthcare system right now is unable to provide. Um, much needed healthcare services, um, other than what we're dealing with, with COVID patients right now. And so we have become focused on, on one, on one issue and the rest of our healthcare system has left to trail behind.
0: I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, the triage protocols and what in and if, and when they come into effect and what that looks like and how that feels, but like, let's be real, you know, we are already triaging away Cancer surgeries and like you know treatments that are necessary for people to continue to live, they just aren't going to die tomorrow if they don't get the surgery. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. the, the the talk about kind of these triage protocols elides the fact that like people who need life saving care are already not getting that life saving care, and they will be affected for the rest of their lives because of it, right?
1: Yeah. Or people that have chronic in, uh, issues that have you know had ongoing issues are are also at a disadvantage where they don't know if if they get sick from from whatever chronic condition they're suffering from if they're going to be able to get timely care and that it's a huge issue when when you have politicians and the chief medical officer telling you not to do anything that could get you into a uh, uh, an accident because you might not be able to get access to health you know my concern is what if there was a, a a massive you know industrial accident or if we had some kind of you know uh, tornado in, in the city, right? or yeah. a bus crash like who who's going to be able to deal with that and and it's just unbelievable to me that uh, we're living in a time when this is a, a concern
0: yeah and and Let's let, yeah. Again, the talk of triage, I think, is distracting. Right? We are we are living in um, a disaster. You know, people. I, I don't know what our average death date over the past week is, but it's it's a lot. You know, the other day we had thirty four people die, and yesterday it was twenty. You know, yes. we're recording this on Friday, October first. Um, you know, so many people are dying right now that like uh, Dr. Darren Markland, uh, Dr. Dagley on Twitter wrote up a thread that essentially. Describes the the path that people take when they die of COVID in a hospital, and it is, it sounds fucking awful. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And and I think it's worth discussing this uh, because, you know, a lot of our our, the rest of our of our chat is going to focus around this. But like, you know, just a content warning: we are going to talk about people dying of COVID and what that looks like from a doctor's perspective. But I'm just going to kind of summarize Dr. Darren Markland's. Uh, thread here, and so I'll be quoting from him. So by the time a patient gets to the ICU, they are already in quite a lot of distress and have low oxygen levels. You know, internal physician medicine, internal medicine physicians have already been providing ICU level care on other floors, and they've been treating co-infections, managing non-COVID aspects of patient health, you know, and trying to manage uh, and and improve the patient with steroids and monoclonal monoclonal antibody therapy. And if that trajectory is set, they come to Dr. Darren Marklin to be placed on a ventilator. And when they come to be placed on a ventilator, that is something that's happened more and more and more. And they are getting very good at putting people on ventilators, and they've learned a lot about how the process works. Um, When someone gets placed on a ventilator, they've been usually infected for about 14 days, Darren, Dr. Marklin says, the virus is long gone by now, but if coronavirus was the lightning storm, that what we are dealing with is the wildfire that got out of control. This is why none of the antiviral therapies work in ICU. They are battling uncontrolled inflammation. You know when you bang your arm and it hurts way more the next day? Like that. But because COVID targets blood vessels, it's like banging every part of your body. They, uh, like putting an ice pack on a bruise, they're using steroids, they're using interleukin blockers and other drugs, uh, for people who are late antibody formers, but all, all that's happening while they are waiting for the kind of, for the infection to go out, for the fire to go out so they can see what happens next. And, uh, this is something I had never heard of, but if that fails and they don't get better, these people might be a candidate for ECMO or extracorporeal corporeal membrane oxygenation. Have you ever heard of this, Sandra, until now?
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I, I had heard it, but it's just, God, this is horrible. I,
0: yeah. They put the patient on a what's called a lung bypass circuit, and oxygen yeah. and CO2 exchange happens outside the body via a giant machine, and they stick garden hose-sized tubes in your neck and groin in order to move that air around. They can only do about twelve of those at a time in the facility that uh, Dr. Darren Marklin works at. If they don't do that to you, they just essentially just like monitor you, <laughs> and they they you know they they treat the things that are happening to you, the surface level stuff that they can see and treat. But at this point, people usually start suffering from acute respiratory distress system, and to keep people with ACR. ARDS from ripping their lungs apart, they need to sedate them very heavily, sometimes even paralyze them, and it makes people incredibly weak. Now, essentially, this person is just in a bed for weeks uh, while they wait for their lungs to heal. Um, There's no clear way to predict who will get better and when. Uh, You know, it's dictated by, as Dr. Darren Marklin says, by genetics and immunity. And they know that people are getting better when the ventilators stop making so much noise because the ventilators are not mo- working so hard to push air around. At that point, they start to wake the patients up uh, and their emergence is often dramatically like coming up from deep water. Uh, if they struggle too much, they can just get just as sick as they were before. Uh, you know, Dr. Darren has seen people get better quickly, others take longer, and sometimes they talk to families about uh, tracheostomies and long-term ventilation. You know they may they may survive, but they will have long term complications. But Dr. Darren talks about a, a subset of people. They seem to improve initially, but despite everything that all the medical care that they receive, they deteriorate after a week on the ventilator. No matter what we do, their lungs get stiffer and stiffer. Instead of healing, their lungs are replaced by scar tissue. You know the doctors search for hidden infections, scan for blood clots, look for strange drug drug reactions, autoimmune disease. And over the ensuing weeks, their heart starts to fail from the tremendous work of pushing blood through fibrous lungs. Deprived of blood, the kidneys fail first. Dialysis will keep them going forward for a while longer, but without lung lung transplantation, the heart eventually stops. Often we sit down with families before these final things happen to let them know the path their loved ones are on. We seek out their values and goals. We let them know what we can accomplish and what we can't often choosing between the lesser of two evils, and I often I am conflicted about putting people in such difficult positions. The journey of dying in the ICU from COVID-19 takes an average of about six weeks. Despite our resources and technology, we can do little but support patients and their families through the process, waiting for them to heal. And though most of us who read this know that vaccination can prevent almost all of this, it is why those of us in healthcare struggle, knowing that this is now preventable. And it's a thought that torments us through every day of those six weeks.
1: That's, uh, that's harsh. That's, that's a harsh reality, um, that healthcare workers are living through and families of people that are dying from COVID, um, live through. It's just, there's no words to describe, um, the, the path of, of death uh, that this, uh, virus is leaving behind, um,
0: and this is why I don't like, like, dunking on anti-vaxxers. Like, I, I don't want people to die like this. This is fucking awful. <laughs> and, and you know, despite the fact that these, the political views of anti-vaxxers are odious. And they could never have to deal with this fucking terrible death by getting a couple of simple fucking shots. Uh, I, I, I don't like writing people off like that. But I think... I think I don't want to focus on individual decisions. I'd much rather focus on the systemic problems of how we got to this place where Alberta has the lowest vaccinations rates, you know, in the country. Where where do you come in, Sandra? Like, why do you think Alberta has such low vaccination low vaccination rates? And how much blame can we put on government policy or you know political culture or you know pick your pick your you, issue? You,
1: you know. Yeah. You know what? I, I think it's a mix of of all those things that you mentioned. Um, initially, when we were waiting for this magical cure, this vaccine to come out, I think that that would have been the time for governments to set some real um, plans around how they would be doing their vaccination rollout, all the public education that needed to be done. But instead, what we heard was mixed messages, um, you know, and then, and then you, you get... Um, you get uh, to hear and, and and see all the stuff that's online. I mean the access to people to misinformation that's available online is just incredible and and so what you need at that time is, is really strong leadership that can actually uh, provide consistent um consistent information that has a consistent plan, a plan that was that was meant to be rolled out as soon as the vaccines were uh, available. But what happened was that, you know, we would hear messaging from all over the place. Hinsha would say something, Dr. Tam would say something, Kenny basically would change whatever he felt the vaccines or this, um, or COVID was, you know, we had Trump at that time uh, in the United States, beaking uh, off about what COVID was, and so there was all kinds of stuff. And so what happens is that any kind of of discontent that people have around government and and institutional structures are projected onto onto the vaccines, unfortunately, and um, and then we get away from the uh, the science, and um, and then it leads to all kinds of of what we're seeing right now, where people are are, I think. In a lot of ways um this this discussion has become so politicized that and has such a strong public response you know it's kind of like issues like climate change some people believe in it some people don't it's it's politicized issues that have really strong public responses and how do you control that uh, is by actually creating a political environment where people trust the government and again and again, what we're going to hear during this discussion is the fact that people have lost trust in our leadership in this province and in, in a lot of ways in, around the world. And so um, it, it, it's been a long time coming, but it's it's been, you know, expanded and a thousandfold um, because of the crisis that we're currently living in.
0: Yeah, I think we have enough evidence at this point to kind of just declare that you know, hard right conservative ideology and their attendant media ecosystems are a danger to public health.
1: Yeah, they and- are. I mean, even the World Health Organization, even before uh, COVID became a thing, they had already identified uh, vaccine hesitancy as a one of the top uh, global health threats, um, along with climate change and pollution, right? Um, and so we know that this, the 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 stage was set there and then you also look at 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 how for years now our our the I want to use it the neoliberal thought it, and and that sense of individualism that has taken uh priority over collective um collective um good it's it's a Action. huge issue yeah. right yeah
0: exactly and and you know when I I don't say that lately like when you're when you're when you're talking about an ideology and media uh, as being a danger to public health, like I don't throw that uh, around lightly. I think that's it's a very heavy charge to make against someone. But when you have a, a media ecosystem in Alberta and across Canada and across North America that is actively working so that people die in the most terrible fucking way and are dying in droves. Uh, And then, and then the knock on effects of, of this, uh, this selfishness is, you know, people aren't able to get their cancer surgery. People aren't able to, to get treatment and healthcare that they require just in order to like live a life. It is, it is incredibly sad. And, 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 you know, politics in Alberta is, I mean, we have the most fucked up political culture in this country by far and and i still think the vast majority of people are able to be kind of reached and reasoned with the reason why i think it's become so bad is that it's be- conservative politics has become part of the culture here and and when it gets embedded into culture it gets very hard to reason with yes and yeah, and we're and it, it's hitting like this fourth wave is hitting rural alberta the hardest like the stats are clear right
1: Oh, for sure, and, and and you see, and that and that's where we have the biggest uh, vaccine hesitancy, and it is, it is a lot of ways, um, cultural, um, and and politics sometimes turns into cultural uh, uh, divisions, and and so it's it's a it's a number of things that have caused us to be where we are right now when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. I mean, and you see it all over the place, and and I'm sure that you have friends um, that. Somehow have gone down a, a deep rabbit hole where it's really difficult to kind of um, get out of um, because now they they truly believe the stuff that we're seeing in those protests and they they truly believe that so how do you how do you change that mind and and yet they hear over and over again what it's like to die from COVID what would it be like for your loved one to die from COVID um, if and that there is a, is a bit of a solution that we can all have access to. There's millions of people around the world that are dying to get their hands on a vaccine, and yet we scoff at them in a lot of ways. Well,
0: and, we have, and we have idiots protesting outside of hospitals. Yeah. All right, I, th- I think we've covered this question. I, I do want to move on to a question that we always ask here on the Progress Report podcast, uh, inspired by Lenin. What is to be done? Uh, Sandra, can you walk us through what healthcare workers and doctors are asking for uh, of this government? What are the what are the kind of policy ideas that are coming out of of from these folks that would stop the spread of COVID and provide some relief to our healthcare system?
1: You know, right now, everybody. Um, who has any kind of knowledge about healthcare, about how our healthcare system is under stretch, is calling for for a fire break, of at least for uh, you know four to six weeks. Um, they want to see a, re, a strict reduction on on the gathering, uh, large gatherings. So, uh, like. You know, hockey games and and concerts and and things like that. They they definitely want this government to put in public health measures that will restrict um, the the ability of this virus to spread so freely, like we've seen in the past. They they want this government to take responsibility uh, and leadership. Uh, and stop advocating that and and, and basically, um, you know, leaving it up to the school boards or municipalities or businesses to actually put in restrictions. They should be the ones that are actually doing, uh, you know, Mandatory masking, and they are the ones that should be uh, imp- re-implementing province-wide uh, contact tracing, and uh, making sure that masking is required in all door settings, including in classrooms. We want them to actually uh, keep our kids safe by by um, doing contact tracing and and. Uh, um, you know, letting people know if they've been close contacts. So, just basically bringing back some of those uh, of those uh, public health restrictions that we have seen in in the past um, to deal with this aggressive Delta variant.
0: And Jason Kenny has looked at all of these suggestions. You know, the Canadian Medical Association, the Alberta Medical Association, the Pediatrics, the pediatric folks. You know, healthcare unions, nurses, workers, healthcare workers all Pretty much call in for the same thing, and Kenny's saying, Oh, we got to wait, saying, we got to wait for the data.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what that and see, and that's and that's what makes me so angry and so frustrated at this government is how many more people is he willing to let die until he feels that enough is enough? I, you know, he, he it, it's just unbelievable that he is so um cruel. And I, I can't say any other. Well, I could say actually quite a few other words that would get me beeped uh, almost everywhere. But it is it is the fact that he's just a, uh, is he's acting in a very cruel manner and he is allowing Albertans to continue to die under his watch.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's be clear that the fourth wave and the, the daily death counts that are so high and the damage that's being done to our healthcare system and the the fact that people are not going to be able to get life-saving care this is this is a choice that Kenny is making he has the ability as the premier of this province to do to to enact measures that would restrict the spread of covid and to give our healthcare system a break he's choosing not to For you know the economy, or because of his his wacko base, or ideologically, he just doesn't want to. Maybe maybe he's a bad person who wants people to die. I mean, I usually don't assume the worst of people, but I think we have more than enough evidence to suggest that that Kenny is, if given an opportunity between kind of like acting cravenly and and doing the right thing, he will always act cravenly until he is forced by absolute necessity to do something. And then this is the, like, this is the joke, right? I think there was a reporter in the press conference and let's, let's take an opportunity to talk about his latest press conference. There was, there was a press conference that happened. I think it was the second to last one where people are like, the reporter was like, people are joking where it's like, you say a thing's not going to happen. And then a few months later it happens. Why don't you just cut out the middleman and just do the thing that you say you're not going to do now. (laughs) And and Jason Kenney's like, I reject the premise of your question, which, you know, he says all the fucking time.
1: He rejects the premise of absolutely every question that holds him accountable for his lack of leadership and responsibility.
0: Yeah, it's like, let's not. That was the funny part. One of the funnier parts of yesterday's press conference, which is like, let's, I'm not here to play the blame game. Well, it's like, well, yeah, pretty fucking obvious why you don't want to play the blame game because uh, you're, <laughs> you're squarely right at the at your fucking center of it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of chatter that, you know, a lockdown was for sure coming. Uh, but folks, uh, do not trust unsourced reports on Twitter from people with no track record of track record of reporting high level UCP decisions. Decisions. The the announcement we got yesterday was an absolute fucking nothing burger. You know, we got an announcement that the army is showing up, the Red Cross, some nurses from Newfoundland. You know, there was a Maxine Van date vaccine mandate for workers in Alberta's public service. Yeah. But uh, it all came
1: you know. yeah it all came amidst the same kind of narrative that he pushes right? Oh we're not that bad you know Alberta is doing not as bad as you know another province uh, during the second or third wave. he likes to make these comparisons that are ridiculous and and are, are, are meant so that he could under, underplay the the current situation and he does that on purpose and, and I always think Quit comparing those things. Like if, if he was a, a true leader, he would actually be saying, Alberta needs to be the first to cut this. We don't need to compare ourselves to somebody who did worse than us because that's not where we want to be. We're talking about human lives, not friggin' socks or, or some other commodity that, you know, that you can sell, that we can sell cheaper or better or, you know, it's just yeah. unbelievable to me
0: when he was comparing alberta to winnipeg or manitoba or ontario those waves were before we had vaccines those like they were right as vaccines were being rolled out you know this is this this wave is is unique and to compare it to those past waves is disingenuous and is just jason kenny cherry picking fucking stats to make him fucking to make himself feel better you know the the things that he was announcing instead of a lockdown were there was a bandage on a fucking bullet wound it was pissing in the ocean it was it was nothing and then he gets and he has the fucking hubris to stand on stage and massage facts and figure and cherry pick stats to make it seem like we are not in a general cri- cri- generational crisis that there isn't a giant hole being blown in the middle of our fucking healthcare system that is going to reverberate For decades, right, and I think now is the opportunity to talk about like what are we realistically looking at in our healthcare system, like how, what are the long-term effects of this going to be?
1: I think the long-term effects are going to be, you know, and and this is this is where um, coming out of this pandemic, we're going to have to reimagine how it is that we uh, basically. Not control our health, but how do we improve our public health care? What we have seen through this pandemic is a government, well, even before, you know, even before this pandemic, we had already seen a government that was bent on on privatization, on on, uh, on basically undermining uh, and uh, and definitely not protecting our public health care. Um, they don't believe in public health care. So for them, all the damage that they've done uh, is, is um, just... For, I think it sets the stage for some very dangerous uh, things that could potentially continue to happen, and and uh, allowing more of a role for the private sector is definitely one of those things that could potentially happen. And what we're already seeing the impacts of that uh, when it comes to our, our healthcare system. Um, and so the damage that we have seen uh, done now uh, because of all the you know overstretched staff that we have um, is just. It's not something new, but but like you call this, this COVID pandemic, uh, uh, you know, a generational health crisis. Yeah, it's gonna be a generational crisis when the staffing issue becomes even more of a problem coming out of this pandemic. If we don't have enough staff, we don't have enough beds. And if we don't have enough beds, we don't have enough capacity within our public system. Um, and, and it's just a domino effect. So um, I think we're in for a really rough ride once this pandemic is somewhat under control and we can kind of uh, reassess the damage that has been done in, the, in this last wave, at least.
0: And, and we do have a bit of precedent here in Alberta too, right? I mean, I'm—I uh, mean, you're a little older than me, and you might remember this better. But I—I've I, heard a lot about how a generation of nurses essentially left Alberta, you know, after Klein's cuts in the '90s, and—and—and right. and, and like we're—we're we're gonna see something that like that, but like you know an order of magnitude larger. Right. And not just in nursing and almost all of the kind of doctors, health uh, technicians, paramedics, like people are just going to leave this province. They're going to leave the jobs. They're going to find other work to do because, uh, they're going to be broken by like, by how this has played out.
1: For sure. And you know, we're we're also seeing like in, in you know in the in the next couple of months we were supposed to be seeing uh, also the 11,000 uh, support workers that were supposed to be contracted out that's a huge loss to our public health care system when it comes to workers right I mean those are the the general support services are sometimes the, the people that we don't talk about but they've also been impacted by what is happening the cuts and and the constant back and forth of undervalu valuing their work and under resourcing them um, so it's it's a it's going to be a domino effect that it, it's going to see our, our healthcare care system um, fall if we don't fight to to kind of ensure that um, when we get out of this, we're going to be in a, in a position where we need to rebuild our public health care. You know, in the 1990s, you're right, we lost a whole generation of nurses. And that's also the time when we started seeing cuts to hospital beds. I mean, to me, a province the size of Alberta, it's just crazy that we only had and, and that we um, at when the situation became critical, that it, it came out that we only had 173 ICU beds available for the entire province, right? And that was our, our baseline that's it. And and so any other person that has had to go into the ICU um, has been surge beds that, that they've had to create as a result of the need that we have. And then we have the, the newly minted minister of health who says that he's going to increase ICU capacity permanently. Well, he's going to increase um, this capacity by reducing base-like surgical capacity within our public system and buying more from the private sector. And so, you know, s- so I, I think we're going to have to be on guard when it comes to the, the protection of our public health care um, in, in the next couple of months.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that Friends of Medicare has always done. They've always focused on continued attempts by governments and corporations to privatize, you know, ever more and more and more parts of our healthcare system, you know, right now, you know, you bring up the the general support workers and the laundry. I mean, I think that that's like still happening, right? Like that's, that's still like Cabro Linens is going to get a big fat government contract and they're going to pay their CEO a nice big fat salary for something that was previously done by like public healthcare workers. Right.
1: Exactly. And, and, uh, you know, and housekeeping and, and food services, those, those jobs are all on the way out. And, and we, because we're all focused on trying to survive, um, things are happening in the background. You know, lab services was was uh, privatized as well, and you know, and and there was a. Um uh, an ad or request for for people to go work because right now at the provincial lab there's about 130 positions that need to be filled um when the lab, the lab and the testing is what got us through the first and second wave in terms of you know making sure that we had uh, knowledge of who who needed to isolate uh quicker and and you know Shandro and and Kenny touted our lab services as one of the most efficient efficient in North America, that, that we led the number of, of testing. And now we see our lab services, again, short-staffed to the point where they're asking other people to volunteer and go work there. Like, it's just, it, it's crazy. It's it's out of control. Uh, and we're only seeing the impact that it has on, on, on patient care, but we're also not, you know, because... That's what we're focusing on. We're not um, getting as much information as we should about what is actually happening in the background to our public healthcare system.
0: Yeah, and and even just in the foreground. I mean, <laughs> uh, let's just talk about an example of just how fucked up the system is right now. Uh, let's talk about the EMS system, our, our ambulances. So. The Health Sciences Association of Alberta, which is the union that represents paramedics, has a, a Facebook page that I uh, quite frequently just—I just have a tab open all the time. I just periodically refresh it. It's called HSAA EMS. We'll put it in the show notes, and it's where members report the various red alerts, shift drops, downgrades, and cases of rural rural ambulance, mostly rural ambulances, kind of like heading, you know, sometimes an hour, an hour and a half away from their home base in order to provide care. Um, you know, and I, I actually did some tallying. Uh, you know, I did. I did three days between September 20th, 28th, and September 30th. Three days. Uh, you know, we're recording this on Friday, October 1st. There have been 11 rural ambulance shifts that have been dropped due to short staffing. There have been four downgrades of rural ambulance, so they go from advanced care ambulance to, uh, to basic life saving. There were 16 separate cases of ambulances being sent far away from their home base to deal with issue. Usually, this is when rural ambulances outside of a big city get called into the big city, but there were some other examples that were wild too of ambulances going like an hour away. And There were seven red alerts where there were no ambulances available to respond to emergencies. These were in Calgary and Edmonton, but also Airdrie, Cochrane, and Drumheller. Um, you know, and, and then you, you go to that page and you can kind of see the cascading effects, right? You'll see a downgrade in Cochrane and then you'll see a Cochrane ambulance that's in Calgary and then you'll see a red alert in Cochrane. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's, it cascades, uh, through our system. And, uh, you know, this is, this is how we get people to the hospital when there is an emergency. Like this is a, a key part of our healthcare system.
1: Yes. You know, and uh, I, I I think it. You know, this this uh, um, the situation with the EMS is is not new, and it's just been basically uh, worsened by this this pandemic. See, this is where it's so frustrating to be an advocate, um, because for decades um, we have called out the trend by successive. a succession of Alberta governments of, um, of ongoing piecemeal staffing cuts and and resource cuts and across the province. And now during the, the worst health crisis Alberta has ever seen, we're seeing the full impact of these ongoing health care cuts. Um, and so basically what it has become now is a full meal deal. Um, and this is one of those cases when I, I wish – you know, I told you so wouldn't be the case, or or we've been right for decades now in calling this out. But but this is this is just the you know basically a, a signal of of all the deficits that we had in our in our public system that have been made worse by COVID, um, and the constant undermining of our of our healthcare system and and our healthcare workers. Is, is what's setting the stage for this current crisis right now as well. So, you know, where where do you start? Um, um, you know, where, where do do you begin to kind of piece everything together? For decades, we have been saying you cannot continue to overstretch our public health care system. You cannot continue to ask people to do more with less because at some point it's going to break. Well, we are at that point now and it's going to take Leadership that actually believes in public health care to piece it back together and not these guys who we currently have in place that are more interested in privatizing and selling our public health care to to private for profit um, people that see uh, Alberta as a fertile ground for profit making.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's. uh... A lot of chickens are coming home to roost in the context of this pandemic, you know, this just in time kind of lean system that they've been running for years and years now uh, fails when an event like COVID happens. And the real effect, the effect is, you know, human lives, both, both the people who die as well as the workers who are forced to kind of work in these terrible fucking conditions. Yes. And, and again, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's it is, this is a conscious decision you know these these were a series of decisions that that were made by governments these are policy choices that led us to the fact uh, the the crisis that we're in now there's one final bit uh, i want to talk about sandra and, and it is a place where maybe even regular people might be able to help out and that is you know the nurses uh, you know negotiation with the government of alberta possibly an upcoming strike um you know do you, do you know where we're at uh, in regards to those, uh, neg- negotiations and what, what is a likely outcome there?
1: You know, I, I, uh, I think this government is actually just taking their time. Um, I don't think they can, um, publicly, um, continue to wage war against the nurses or the physicians for that matter. Not, not just now, but my, um, my take on all of this, and it and it's the same thing with the rest of the auxiliary nurses and and everybody else that works in in uh, in our healthcare system is that this government is is going to use this pandemic as an excuse to have to uh, uh, go in there and and make cuts. Um, and I have no idea how they're going to be justifying it. But we saw that in in the little bit of a, a fiscal update that uh, Taves gave uh, not too long ago. Um, you know where they talk about the fact that we're going to have to tighten our belts and uh, we're going to have to be responsible um, citizens, I guess if you want to call us that. Um, but I I just think it's it that this war is not going to go away. Um, and they might make some concessions, but um, I think. Um, the frontline yeah, staff like, have reached a boiling point, and I, I don't know what it will take for for them to actually not not uh, consider anything anything uh, as, a, as as anything less than anything that this government sorry has to. Provide now is, is has been a disrespect um, for the value of the work that that all healthcare workers do, and so you know this government's going to have to work to regain that trust and to regain uh, that place where they can actually uh, truly negotiate a fair deal.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think for better or for worse, the like the United Nurses of Alberta, the union that represents nurses in this province, their negotiations with the government of Alberta over their next contract are really going to set the terms for, uh, you know, uh, future negotiations for what labor militancy looks like throughout the kind of healthcare system. Um, and you know, like the government, I, th- I believe, has moved off of zeros. No, the government government offered, I think, a five percent wage rollback to nurses initially, yeah. Uh, and they've moved off that to zeros essentially, um, with like a couple of minor uh, pay bumps at the end of a contract. But there's some, there's some pay, there's some they take away some pay at the beginning of the contract. So essentially, zeros from my analysis.
1: Yeah, and but then, it's also it comes with some uh, losses to their benefits, which. Translates into about a two percent rollback,
0: right? So exactly, yeah. Like it comes to it comes to zeros, I like at the end of it, right? So it's that's the contract that's currently on the table from the government to the United Nurse of Alberta is this five year, you know, minus two off the top, and then plus two at the end of the contract. Right. Um,
1: that's a yeah. heck of a long contract
0: five years yeah I would not I would not negotiate a five-year contract with the UCP I don't know I don't think they're gonna be around that long but the uh, but like if they ever get to a strike it is um, it would be the, it would be unprecedented like the first legal strike of nurses in Alberta like nurses used to not be able to go on strike in this province until recently yeah. and uh, you know it is the responsibility of every everyone to kind of stand in solidarity with our nurses if it gets to the point where they're on the street right?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I, um, it would be, it it just, that's the least that we could do. Uh, we always, our, our, our thing is that, uh, working conditions are care conditions and, uh, and never has that been more true than now. And, and so I I think solidarity with any healthcare worker that needs to take their, um, they're bargaining, um, to the streets. It's, it's, uh, I think it goes without saying that that's where we need to be standing side by side with them.
0: Thanks so much for coming on Sandra. What's the best way for people to follow along and support the important work you do at the friends of Medicare?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, you guys Everybody can follow us on on Twitter at uh, Friends of Medicare. Um, they can uh, join um, by going to our web page www.friendsofmedicare.org. Um, you can become members; is only 20, 20 bucks a month. Oh, sorry, a year. I wish it was. T- 20 months, $20 a year five for low income. Uh, If you don't want to become a member, but still want to get our emails, just uh, sign on and we will send you all the information we share all the time. Um, You know, I I think undoubtedly we're going to be uh, looking at what actions can be taken. I, I think we can't we cannot sit back and let this government continue to do harm to our public health care system. And so it's going to take all of us to stand up to this uh, government and, and to make sure that coming out of this pandemic, we will, have, um, we, we will be able to rebuild from the solid foundation that we currently have uh, in our health care system uh, and come, come out stronger as a, as a society.
0: So that's it for this week's podcast. Uh, thanks again to Sandra for coming on. Thanks to Cosmic Family Communists for our amazing theme. And thank you to Jim Story, as always, for doing the edits. Uh, I'm very easy to get a hold of. If you think I have uh, missed anything or if you have any notes, thoughts, or comments, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at, at Duncan Kinney. And you can reach me by email at DuncanK at ProgressAlberta.ca. Uh, thank you for listening and goodbye.